Here we are on the edge again. I'm Kelly Ryan. And I'm Rob Driscoll. Today's guest is Arlene Dickinson, who helped grow Calgary-based venture communications into one of Canada's largest independent marketing agencies. She is a three-time best-selling author and one of Canada's most influential business leaders. Of course, most people will know her from Dragon's Den, the TV show where entrepreneurs come looking for partners and support financially. And she has become known as the funder because she is so enthusiastic. She certainly puts her money where her mouth is and has really supported a lot of businesses across the country. She's also very inspiring. I read her stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter, and she just has a lot of thoughtful, good things to say about what's going on out there in the world these days. Indeed, no question. She's inspiring many with her words and her accomplishments. So we thought we'd get her on the show to talk about her latest massive venture. Can you explain to me what motivated your decision to create Believe Co? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and actually is what motivated the name. In fact, it was, you know, we all as independent agency owners, and Rob, you'll appreciate this for sure, is that, you know, when you're working in the media or the marketing business as an independent, you're always up against big companies. You're always up against size and scale. And um, and then there comes a point in time, and, and that's fine. You can be scrappy and independent and still figure it out and, and, and serve, service clients well. But what makes you different when you uh, are doing all those things and uh, competing is that you end up becoming very independent. You know, you end up having to make choices as an entrepreneur. You end up trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to survive. And then one day you go, well, you know, how am I going to exit out of this business? How do I, you know, who do I sell this business to? You, you hit a point where you either need to grow and scale or you need to decide or because of time and your, and your point, you you decide to sell. And you look around, you go, geez, there's a lot of multinationals, you know, like, and, and when I say multinationals, I mean, you know, big, big corporations, you know, publicly traded organizations that are buying agencies and that's an option. And, you know, you can sell to them, but then you think that everything I've built as an independent gets lost when you do that. Um, and so, you know, I was at that stage where I thought that I can't be the only independent shop out there trying to figure out how do I keep the legacy of what I built and have an opportunity for the people that have come along with me and, um, and not lose all of that when I sell to somebody who doesn't care about either one of those things, the legacy or the people. Um, and it's all about the revenue of the clients. And, and so I was really struggling with what to do. And it struck me that, you know, what had been, um, uh, worked for me in building relationships in my career. And, uh, those relationships had become, you know, either client driven or team driven. And that, um, I, as again, I couldn't be the only agency thinking that. So decided to see if I could consolidate and put together a play that actually focused on being independent and relationship driven and, Kept, kept founders at the at the wheel, you know, like instead of being just, you know, employees of big, a big corporation and started looking in the market to see who else was out there and found a few other like-minded people and found many other like-minded people actually and saw that there was a huge opportunity. And so we raised some capital and got those people on board and put together um, what now will be one of the largest independent shops, uh, certainly in Canada, and, and I, we hope to be in North America. You know, it's, it's just a great opportunity to take everything that an entrepreneur is and represents and put it at scale. Is it fair to call it like an umbrella agency or is that too loose? 
No, it's it's um it's it's one it's one business. Uh, we have three market-facing brands. So we've got um, Believe Co, which is the marketing um, agency. We've got Argyle, which is the public relations, public affairs agency, and then we've got Castleman, which is the indigenous advocacy um, and and um, communication agency. So those are market-facing brands, but we are one business. We're out there uh, working together, even though we've got three market-facing brands. We're we're very consolidated. Very good. And how has it gone so far? Well, it's only been a few months, so I think it's gone great. But, <laughs> uh, um, but it, you know, it's, it's been a few months. It's it's going really well. I mean, the 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 energy and the enthusiasm for what we started here is is really palpable, and had a lot of like minded people who have said that they would like to join us. Is there an ethical component to your customer base? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I always think that you know you when you're philosophically aligned with your clients and your team you're going to do better you know when you're when you're pushing water uphill just for the sake of revenue you're you're not and so yes there's a there's a view to doing work with people who have you know like-minded values and who care about the same things and who are um are committed to relationship building as opposed to a vendor supplier relationship which many agencies have with their clients and vice versa we wanted to talk about uh, Dragon's Den, of course. Yeah. In the early years, Business Edge actually did an article talking about how few of the the promised investments actually came through. But my understanding is that really changed and that you actually earned a reputation as being the funder. Did you see it change that way where the, where the show really started to put the money behind the pledges? Well, you know, I listen, I'll... With dragons on the show have their own, it's their money. They can do what they want with it. You know, when they make a decision on the show, um, lot of these things fall through because when you start doing due diligence, the real due diligence that happens after the show, you know, the business isn't what was presented or the dollars aren't what was presented or the entrepreneur, you know, doesn't really want to do the deal. You know, like, there's all sorts of reasons deals fall apart. But I, you know, I, I, I've always operated from a belief of we have to at least do the do, you know we have to have the conversation after the show you can't just not have the conversation so i think i don't know the close rate of the other dragons i have no idea because it's hard to keeping up with my own stuff um but i hope i hope that's true rob i hope that's true and what would you say is your biggest success out of dragon's Ten? oh i've had a few really good successful stories um i can think of three actually right off the dot so balzac's coffee um, you know, which has it's a coffee um, company based in Ontario that um, you know I invested and got uh, involved in, and now we actually literally own the business. It's it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic company, and it's done very well. Um, OMG Candy, which has just I don't know if you know OMG Candy, they came on several years ago, what seven or eight years ago now, and uh, they've just gone on to have huge scale and have done very very well. Um, Cook It, which is a meal kit delivery company based in Montreal, a female founder, that's gone and done um, very, very well. These all, all these companies are doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue, and they all started off with very small revenue. So it's, it's, there's been some really great success. Um, now, celebrity can be difficult, as we know. Well, I, I don't know. I've heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> but have you found it challenging uh, to balance your personal life and the celebrity life? You know, I, what I decided a, a long time, it's, it's a great question. And, and I, I'll tell you, like, it's, it's a real privilege to be on television. Um, 
in any, in, in, for any period of time, you know, like there's a, there's a kind of a, um, there's a weight to that to make sure that you represent and that you are true to yourself. And that, that leads to the answer to my question, which is when I'm on drag and then I really am just myself. And so it's not like I have to be a persona on TV and then something else in person. And, and so for me, it's been probably less of a shift to say, well, okay, you know me for, as this character on television, but I'm somebody completely else in real life. I am kind of who I am on the, on the show too. So it was, it's, it's, it's still an adjustment for me when people recognize me and talk to me. Like it's still like 17 years later, I still kind of go, how do you know? Because I guess you, you see the show, you know, like it's just always kind of a bit of a shock because I'll go, I'll, honestly, Rob, where it happens the most is if I'm going out to a store or a grocery store with no makeup on and I look horrible and somebody will, <laughs> and that's inevitably what somebody will recognize me and want a picture. I'll go, oh. And no, I'm not Arlene. <laughs> I was, that's when I, I was actually on my Twitter. I say, I look, I'm told I look a lot like that woman on TV. Like I say, no, no, it's not me. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's such a, it's, it's just being a privilege. I, I don't have any other way to say it. It's being, is it hard work and all those things? Sure. But the ability to have a platform as a result and the ability to have a voice in, in what matters for entrepreneurs in this country, it's just being a privilege. So. I sometimes think you get elevated too much because you're on television. So you got to be careful not to start believing your own press, I'd say. And you have to remember that you're, you know, you're just a TV personality. It's interesting because you are more than a TV personality. Of course, you're an author and you are an inspirational leader on LinkedIn. I mean, I, I follow you and uh, I'm amazed at the hundreds of people every day who just write. I needed to hear that today. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Eileen. You know, the thing about LinkedIn that I find lately is that there, there's a lot of hubris on there. You know, a lot of people talking about how great they are. And then there's a lot of people talking about, you know, that are kind of self-acclaimed um, gurus on everything, right? And and I, my posts on LinkedIn, I, you know, first of all, they're my posts. And so I'm I'm usually as conscious through the thought. I'm thinking I'll be in the middle of something horrible at business and I'll think, okay, what's the lesson here? And then I'll, I'll write it into my LinkedIn post or I'll Think, be thinking about, you know, reflecting on the past. So, you know, you don't want to sound like everything's always great because there, and I think the reason my post resonates is because I talk about some of the struggles I've had. And I think, you know, I think being vulnerable and being honest is what drives the response I get. You know, well, that's great that it. you can be authentic and, uh, and be admired. When I get authentic on LinkedIn, I get banned. So, <laughs> well, that, yeah, I mean, I, there's times I probably could be a little more authentic <laughs> from that perspective, Rob. But, um, you know, like I, I don't know. There are times that I read some people's posts and I think it's just, it's just too perfect, right? It's just, it's, life isn't perfect. Yeah. Business is not perfect. I really appreciated your recent post about fear um, and not letting fear be the thief of your joy. I think you said, um, what motivated a post about fear? You know, I think maybe this is a function of my age, you know, that because I'm, I am older now and I think about things differently. And most people, as they get a little bit older, their risk tolerance becomes less. People get more afraid of risk as they get older. I'm actually getting less afraid of risk as I get older. And it's because I, I think about the context of time. And so, you know, and I also think about what I did wrong in my life where I started when I was afraid. I was just literally afraid to try things because I didn't want to embarrass myself 
I didn't want to look stupid. I, I think I let fear get in my way a lot. And so it was, it was, it was kind of ruminating again about, you know, why didn't I do those things? Cause I didn't want to look stupid, you know, like who cares? Like but I, I, I've said over and over again that my dad always said to me that I, I would be a lot less worried about what other people thought of me if I knew how little they did. And, you know, like, you know, like, and he's early in your five minutes of gossip at somebody's dinner table and then they move on to their own life. So what do you care if people don't like what you're doing? You have to like what you're doing. And so true. So, so true. Now, along the lines of the, the fear theme, um, a lot of what I write about and what we cover with big media is, uh, related to the issues of today that often get misrepresented through sensationalism in the media. And, and I, I think it's a big problem. I know you're in a position where you might not be able to speak completely freely on it, but uh, I really feel like the mainstream media model is broken, uh, that they are all falling over themselves to uh, publish the most sensational, shocking material. And, and the truth is almost completely lost in that. Um, now you're in the media world on the other side, helping people with their branding and so on. But do you, do you see the mainstream media model being broken? Uh, it's just a really big question. And I do have thoughts on it. Um, Rob, I'd say that I, it, you know, what happened when an uh, opinion writer ever became a you know, quote journalist because they were able to push something. And when that happened, um, and there was this mass move to social media as a result of it. And, and you saw papers and traditional media suffering in terms of audience and reach. Instead of kind of sticking to what they knew and, and being proud of the and, and showing up a skill that they, they needed to figure out how to get audience back. In an effort to do that, they created a sensationalism to try and just get eyeballs and, and, and get people to read things. And I, so I, while I, and so I can understand why they went there. But in doing that, they opened up this huge blind side to being criticized for not being journalists, for not, you know, sharing the truths, for, for being um, very sensational and um, or sensationalist. And, and I think I have like I invested in a company called Goodable. I don't know if you've heard of Goodable. Goodable is a is a is a media platform that only does good news. It's owned by a, a fellow um, who, you know, was a journalist who went into war zones and, you know, just he's an amazing human. And he said, you know, like what, what's wrong about this is, is everybody's clicking on the bad stuff because that's where the, that's where the needs to be is getting people to click on bad things. So he created this platform called Goodable. And he is actually demonstrating that people are craving truth. They're craving good news. They're craving um, values they're craving um they're, they're they're craving not to have to make choices between one side and another and a lot of media is trying to get people to choose between one side and another so i think i think there's all that to say i think there are media that are starting to get it and starting to figure out how to create position but you know we do have very far right very far left we have media you know um out at mainstream media that's um far too politicized and we've got to get back to media that is about the journalistic truth and about backseat and about sharing and and helping people understand what is real versus what is fake and that's going to take courage because that means letting go of some eyeballs and holding on to a core audience that actually is looking and seeking truth and that's hard for them to do because they have shareholders and because they have pressure because so it's very complex 
is what I'm saying. And um, I don't think it helped when, you know, Donald Trump, because he didn't like what they were saying, kind of started blaming them for everything. Um, so mainstream media became a target um, and an easy target because if, if I blame mainstream media, then I can have you listen to the media that I like, which, I mean, this, you know, if it's Fox News or whoever it is, um, and the one that I can control the message on. So I'm not so certain that it was mainstream media's, maybe it was mainstream media's fault for not being true to itself. Maybe that's what I, sorry, that was a big ramble, but no, it's a, actually, a lot of thought points. I, I really I really love the way you put that. Yeah. Thank you. The, you know, one of the challenges that mainstream media had was that it created a lot of um, opinion um, columnists who really, they're opinion columnists. They are not spreading truth. That's just their view. But people started to, com- you know, um, conflate the the truth and the opinion and, and, what, and who had the louder voice became what was heard the most and who had the most followers was became what was believed. You know, you've got, whether it's, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to pick on thoughts, but you've got, you know, the Tuckers of the world, you know, and what they're saying, you know, is that journalism or is that opinion? One of our recent um, interviews uh, was, is the CEO of a copper company. And um, we talked with her about whether it was difficult as a woman um, in the mining world. And her perspective was that the, the glass ceiling uh, while it may have been there, has softened, in fact. Um, what are your perspectives on that? Well, I, I, wow, those are, um, these are really, you know, you're making me really think hard right now. So <laughs> I, I think, do I, do I think uh, it is softened? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I, and I and I don't mean to be wishy washy. I, I my my main answer is no, it, it hasn't. Um, yeah, you know, we've come a long way. There's been a lot of progress. Things have definitely shifted. Um, there's a lot more um, awareness and um, advocacy for women in business and and women in their careers. At the same time that that's happening, though, we have a, a deterioration of women's rights and of human rights. And so if you think about it, you've got, you know, while I might have more opportunity in my job, I'm facing, you know, health crises in terms of what's happening with my, you know, my own controlling my own body. I'm, I'm facing crises relative to the pandemic that set us back, you know, decades in terms of our progress because we had to, you saw women going home to take care of their kids and their parents and you know, doing homeschooling and, and having to give up their careers because they're, they just weren't either they weren't able or entrepreneurs who were working from their home who couldn't do it anymore because they had to take care of their families. And so it's easy to say, yeah, it's better at the business and the business world because there's more opportunity. But how can that be true if at the same time we as women are losing our rights and losing our position and losing our, our voice because of legislature that is being put in place because of um, a belief system around where women belong because of, you know, you know, beliefs that are really starting to get more and more ingrained around how we don't have a right to build positions in the business world or we, we can't um, perform in the business world because of our biological functions. It's, it's females. There's, there's just so, it's, it's, it's really messy. And so I don't think it has softened because we are we are facing a tsunami of prejudice and bias right now that I don't think has been uh, 
dealt with properly. Do you think that the the whole pandemic and the way it was managed with the lockdowns and everything has had a huge impact on women in the workforce? I don't think that there was anything put in place um, by government or elsewise that created it. I think what happened was that it was just a reality of um, slipping back into traditional roles. You know, it, it, nobody had to say women should stay home. But, you know, as soon as we said kids are going to be homeschooled, it, it slipped to a traditional facet that that fell on the, the mom's shoulders. And so I think it was less about policy and more about just going back to some traditional values and views that aren't true, but were probably necessary given the circumstances. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't even say they were necessary. I just think they just happened as a result of what happened with the pandemic. Not to say, you know, I mean, I have an opinion, like I, I'm like, listen, the pandemic and, and whether government managed it well or, or not, there's a million different perspectives on that. Um, you know, I was an advocate for vaccines. Uh, you know, I, I believe I believed in them and I think that they are the reason that the, you know, virus has been controlled, but that's just me. And that I have a right to that opinion. It doesn't matter if people agree with me or not. And, and that you touched on something that um, we'd write about again quite often and uh, the ability to say your opinion and actually just be respected for it is, I, I feel like that's been lost in the last few years. And, and part of it's because of the media and part of it's because of the politicians. But do you find that it's, it's become more difficult to speak freely? If you're going to speak freely, you have to be prepared for um, the hatred and you have to be aware of you know, between bots and trolls and, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it can be debilitating to be honest on social media. Um, but I have learned to put my view and opinion out there. And I don't spend a lot of time looking at what other people are saying about it. Because if I did, I put my opinion out there. It would be too hard. Um, so you have to, you have to have a bit of an ire will against it. And once in a while I'll engage, you know, if somebody's just said something that really bothers me. Um, but for the most part, I try not to engage because it isn't a dialogue that's being created on these social platforms. As much as we want it to be, it isn't. It's a bunch of opinion being thrown out there and you can choose to listen to that opinion and look at it. It can, you can learn from it. And, and that can be on either side of the coin. You know, like I don't think I'm, an opinion can be changed by somebody expressing their view thoroughly and, and articulately and providing, you know, background research and information that gives me pause to ponder and think about whether I'm right or wrong. I think that's healthy debate and I love that, but de healthy debate on social media is very rare. So it's, you know, better to maybe express your opinion in person with somebody that you can have a healthy debate with than trying to expect that on social media. And when someone like me says, um, but the vaccine didn't stop transmission. So it, you are exposed to the side effects plus usually the virus itself and that a healthy person, there's still no data in my mind that suggests a healthy person should get vaccinated with the current lineup of COVID vaccines. And that really we end up, uh, and media, again, I'm going to find them 
a lot of times it just gets simplified. And, and so instead of breaking into demographics, we all just say, oh, a whole bunch of people died. So everybody should get vaccinated. Now, when, when someone comes up with a counter argument to that, um, do you engage sometime? And will you right now? <laughs> um, I do engage. Um, I have had those debates. Um, you know, I, I have, I, do I, do I know you're wrong? I don't know you're wrong. Do I believe you're wrong? Yes, I believe you're wrong. And I believe you're wrong because, um, history would say whether it's smallpox, whether it's tuberculosis, whether it's, you know, chickenpox, whether it's anything that we've been vaccinated for as, as a species, um, that those things have been stopped, um, you know, measles, et cetera, because of vaccines. And so I do think that vaccines are an effective way to combat the spread of the virus. I, I, I just think that's science. Um, I do have a lot of friends in the healthcare industry that I spoke at length to when this was all going on and tried to understand what was happening on the front lines and tried to understand what their views were. A lot of scientists, friends, a lot of people that I, and, and not even just friends, people that I respected and had, had read about. And I also read the other side of it. I also spent a lot of time, you know, trying to understand, you know, why people didn't think it was a good idea. And I, I all I can say is I respect your choice. Um, you have a choice. Um, but I do believe that the reason that we are where we are right now is because the vaccine was implemented. That's, again, my opinion. Yeah, no, and I, I always appreciate it. And I do engage on social media just about every day. And, and I just try yeah. to elevate the discussion. And then, yeah. then I ask my data scientists to go tell us the truth and, and, and remove every bit of spin that they can. And, and I think, yeah. unfortunately, very few people have access to the to the important data. And, and so yeah. I think, uh, things are, things are changing and, uh, and just on your point of, about vaccines in general, uh, we, we wrote an article on vaccines and it was essentially a celebration of the successes like smallpox and polio. Yeah. And yeah. It just, the data on this one is, is very different. So we're, we're still finding out, but I, but I always appreciate just the discussion where it doesn't yeah. end into uh, vitriol. Yeah. It doesn't need to. There needs to be tolerance for everybody's view and there needs to be understanding where everybody's coming from. Um, having said that, you know, I my another thing I, I another quote I always use is, you know, lies, lies, and statistics. You know, like you can interpret statistics however you want, and that's that part of the challenge. And that's what happened here. Um, I belong to a business group and there's there's a few people on that business group that are on your side of the uh, of the debate. And there was a lot of exchange on, on, on that in that group. And, and I can tell you, um, I still come back to um, doing what's best for everybody has to be something that is a core value. And, and so that's where I came from, at least. Is there anything else that you would like to say about going forward in what is, in fact, a, um, a divided uh, Population. Population. That's the word. Thank you very much. A divided population. What would your advice be for someone on how to uh, stay strong, I guess, and not be afraid? Um, and this is going to sound, maybe it'll sound corny. You know, I believe that good, good can prevail. Um, you know, good, good could be divined in many ways. And what, what is, what defines good? What is a good person? 
Um, I think uh, I think when you think about human rights and you think about equality and you think about tolerance and you think about um, you know the fact that you know when we all die, we all die the same. It doesn't matter your color, it doesn't matter your beliefs, it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated, it doesn't matter if you just met your kid, you know. And I think if we could just realize that we're born the same and we die the same, you know, everything in between starts to become less um, extreme. And there's this whether it's a religious belief, whether it's a, there's just, there's just so much, there's so much somehow weird desire in the world to pick sides quickly. I said this earlier, but this notion that you have to be on a side, you don't have to be on a side. And if you do need to choose a side, take your time choosing it. Why do we have to pick a side right now? We have to actually think about what's right and what's good. And I, I, I believe that's possible. I, I have an inherent belief. I believe in the nature of human beings to be good. And if we can just try and um, find the good of people, we will be less divided. And maybe that's me being Pollyanna. Maybe that's not possible. Um, but I like to think it is. I like to think that we, you know, we all have a place in this world is messy right now it's really messy it's really um it's really it is it is very fearful out there you got to stop being afraid and start being courageous to defend um each other and defend to defend what's right and when i say defend i don't mean fight i mean you know stand up for the people that are vulnerable and who don't have what we have you know we, we're very we're very fortunate you the three of us on this line are very fortunate so I believe in good. I do. I believe it'll prevail. We, we do too. <laughs> we're yeah. we're going to work hard to spread it. <laughs> good. Glad. One more, one more glad. good question for you, Arlene. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I believe in yeah. women entrepreneurs and I, I have Kelly as a business partner in Business Edge and I have Lori Weston as a partner in Big Media. And I, I know that there are tremendous benefits to having women on leadership teams and on boards of directors that's well-documented and in, in, in my life and in studies. Um, but we're, we're, our, our birth rate is declining at a dangerous rate all over the world. Do you find that um, we can empower women and still celebrate motherhood and, and find a balance there? A thousand percent. Like, you know, like I, I, a thousand percent. I mean, biologically, we get to bear children and, and it's, it's an incredible, I, I mean, making life is actually a pretty damn cool thing. And it's a pretty incredible thing to be able to do. I don't feel like uh, that limits me in the workforce. I don't feel like that limits. If I want, if I choose to stay home and be a, a great mother, I should have that choice. If I choose to work and be a great mother, I should have that choice. Um, and I don't think it should limit us whatsoever. I, I you know, I, I've, I've experienced biases of being a female, you know, you're, you're going to come to work and you're going to get pregnant. You're going to have a maternity leave. We're still going to, you know, we're going to have just trained you and, you know, all that stuff. Like, have, you know, men need to get over themselves. It's like, it's just so ridiculous. Like, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. What a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you. Um, I loved all your answers, by the way. Um, and I, I really appreciate um, the level of uh, dialogue today. It's, I, I hope we can see more of it uh, in the, the greater populace.
Well, keep having these conversations with people and you're, you're, you're part of the solution. You know, you're, you're inviting people to have um, exactly what we just did, which is a conversation and you're not judging me for right or wrong. I'll leave you with what I say to my children every day. Find the good. You got to find the find good. Find the good. Yeah. Find the good, man. Amen to that. <laughs> Wow, what a great interview. Uh, we covered so much ground and got Arlene's thoughts on so many different things and uh, indeed what an inspirational person she is and what a privilege it has been to have Arlene on our podcast. If you want to read the full interview, you can go to businessedgemedia.ca where you will find Business Edge magazine online and the entire interview is transcribed. You can also find other podcasts on inspiring business leaders. And if you're walking around and you see Business Edge magazine in a local business or office, well, that's us too. So pick it up and have a read at your leisure. Once again, this has been another episode of On the Edge. I'm Rob Driscoll. And I'm Kelly Ryan. <laughs>